0: Alright, good morning church. Alright, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Second Peter, we uh, last week finished a five month stint through the book of Ephesians, and so this morning we get the pleasure of jumping into a brand new book, uh, Second Peter, and so as you're turning there, let me... Uh, go ahead and have you remember Jody Forrester? Her uh, son passed away a few weeks ago, and uh, she brought these beautiful flowers from the funeral yesterday up here. And so, uh, just remember her in prayer. Uh, we we are uh, we're not a production church; we are a people church. And so, uh, we uh, we do want you to remember our people as they as they go through different trials and pains and sufferings. And so, uh, let's uh, remember her in prayer. As we jump into 2 Peter, we I, I really uh, wrestled with it this week and, and had two books that I was kind of reading, going back and forth on, and where we were going to land. And after finishing up last week with putting on the full armor of God, I felt that 2 Peter would be a great follow-up. So that 2 uh, Peter, it's written, and it's written for Christians to grow in their spirituality, that they would grow spiritually, and they would combat apostasy. And so they he's writing to them to to supplement their faith as you're going to see here in chapter one that they would they would put forth effort in their spiritual growth so what is apostasy well real quick apostasy is from the greek word apostasia which means a defiance a rebellion an abandonment or breach of faith it is a denial of key christian truths thus leading to a life that abandons or rejects christ So Peter is writing to a church, an early church, that is beginning to see false teachers come in and preach a different gospel. He's beginning to see people deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And these Gnostics that were coming in, they claimed to have knowledge, and they claimed to have this new revelation of, oh, let me tell you this, this is what's been revealed to me. And they were beginning to lead people astray that they would begin to deny Christian truths, and then eventually deny Christ altogether. We see this more in chapter 2 and so let me walk through four things that we see about apostasy real quick it's to deny the lordship of christ with teaching and intellect you begin to see in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction So here Peter is saying, listen, you're going to see these false prophets, these false teachers moving among you, and they're going to secretly weave in destructive heresies. They're going to mix the gospel up in in your brain. They're going to change a few things and say, oh, this is a new revelation. And eventually that's going to lead them to completely deny Christ. And so this is the first thing we see. apostasy number two is deny the lordship of Christ with loose and immoral living. And so verse two of chapter two. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So not only are they beginning to teach against Christ in the full counsel of his word, the gospel, they're now beginning to live as if this doesn't apply to them. Well, I believe this, and so I'm going I'm to follow sensuality and immorality and, and different things like that. And so you begin to see it in the way they live. Thirdly, apostasy is to deny or distort god's truth for financial gain verse 3 of chapter 2 and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep and so they would they would speak in ways that would you know tickle the ears of the listeners they would they would hear things like oh i like that that's that's more on page with how i feel and so they would do it and they would do it in a way that they would win the approval of people so that they could gain financially this was the pattern of apostasy and then verse 10 uh, we we learned that apostasy is to defile themselves and others with blasphemous passions and rebellion verse 10 and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones at some point, they had taught against the gospel and they had led other people to believe the things they believed. Then they began to justify their immoral living, their sensuality. They began to say, well, this is what I believe. This is how I interpret the scripture, right? And then they would teach those things and people would love to hear those things. And they would receive financial gain from that. And eventually, they would get so far in their denial of Christ that they would willfully disobey his word. Does this sound familiar? Apostasy? Apostasy? That it just sneaks its way into the church and then begins to teach a false gospel and leads other people astray. Pew Research reports this. America is still a Christian nation. If the term simply means the majority of the population will claim the label if the pollster calls. But as they have studied, the decline of Christianity in the United States continues at at a rapid pace. A bare 65% of Americans now say they're Christians. Did you hear that? Only 65% of our population in America say they're Christians. That's down from 78% in 2007. The deconverted, that's what they call it, the deconverted, the ones who have apostatized, that have walked away from the faith, are mostly moving away from religion altogether. And the ranks of religiously unaffiliated, or the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, have swelled from 16% to 26% over the same period of time. If this rate of change continues, the U.S. will be majority non-Christian by 2035. Wow, that's, what, 12 years? I mean, if you think about the pattern that it's moving in, we just, we just got back from England, right? Right? And part of the reason we went to England was to do a sports camp in order to help a church formulate a youth group. And the reason is, is because according to studies, the U.K. is now less than 50% evangelical. So they would say that they are in the 40% range. If you went around and polled people, are you a Christian, less than than 50% would say yes. And out of the churches that are still operating in the U.K., I think I told you this, only 17% of them have teenagers in them. So if this is the pattern, if apostasy is coming, and if it's already here, then we can see that there is a stiff decline, a swift decline in the church and its future because who are the ones that are walking away from the faith? It's the next generation. The next generation is saying, you know what, I don't know if I believe that anymore. And the reason is, is because They've mixed up the gospel. They've heard people with false teaching say, you know what, let me let me kind of twist it so that I can justify my passions, my sensualities. And once I justify my sensualities for long enough, you know, it's gonna be so appealing to other people that people are gonna buy into that. And eventually when you begin to disregard certain truths of your Christianity, you will eventually deny Christ altogether and willfully disobey his word. Second Peter is talking to Christians as a warning. It is, as J. Vernon McGee says, it's his swan song of a letter. Just as Second Timothy was the swan song for Paul. There's striking similarities between the two books. Both epistles put up a warning sign along with the pilgrim pathway the church is traveling to identify the awful apostasy that was on the way at that time and which is, in our time, arrived. What was then like a cloud the size of a man's hand today envelops the sky and produces a storm of hurricane proportions. Peter is warning against heresy among teachers, where Paul was warning against the heresy among the laity. So who is the author? You can guess it, right? Peter. The letter's named after him, right? It starts there, Simon Peter, Simon Peter a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right up front, we know it's Peter. Peter the apostle. Peter is the author. He's the servant. He calls himself a servant, which is the word slave of Jesus Christ. He is not, he is not his own anymore. He is, he is all in, and he is the apostle. And then he says, of equal standing in the faith. Of equal standing. This should be encouraging to all of us. Peter, who was one of the 12, who was called, come follow me, who was part of the inner three, who was super tight with Jesus, right? They walked together. He saw everything, and he now writes to believers, and he says, listen, my faith and your faith, same level. We are of equal standing before the cross of Jesus Christ because we have received a righteousness that is not our own. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So this is how he writes to us. He's Peter. Peter's the one that I think is the most relatable. He's the one, he's the disciple, as some have said, with a foot-shaped mouth, right? He just kept, kept saying things that his body couldn't, couldn't finish, right? He was like, hey, I'll do that, and he didn't do it. Like walking on water, right? Matthew 14, 28 through 31. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. Number one, remarkable, right? It's remarkable. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Isn't he the one that you can relate to? The one that says, yeah, Jesus, I can, I'm, I'm in. I'm going. Whoa, I don't like this. And you began to sink. Peter's the one that I find relatable because he's the one that struggled when things got tough. Yet he was the toughest of them all, right? Matthew 26, 33 through 35. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, because of you I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. He was... He was bold. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you, you deny three times that you know me. Satan has demanded to sift him like wheat. This is the imagery of that, that he would take Peter in his hand and he would begin to grind him until he gave in. You know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's somebody I can relate to. To feel the pressure, to, to know the the heartache of of continually following and yet feeling the weight of... Persecution, the weight of um, sin, the weight of temptation, all the different things that are working against following Christ. Oh, I can do it. Well, Peter learned he couldn't do it at his own strength. As I won't read all of this, but later in the chapter of Luke 22, 56 through 62, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And then you see there following that he denies two more times Peter is somebody who did turn after he fell and strengthened his brothers and that is exactly what this letter is let me strengthen you because apostasy is coming let me strengthen you because there is distortions of the gospel all over the place and I want you to stand firm Paul would say, I want you to put on the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the fiery darts of the enemy. I want you to be able to stand against his schemes. Peter would say, listen, I want you, I want you to grow in godliness because that's going to give you assurance. That, that'll give you assurance. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in and look at these first 11 verses. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that is revealed in it, Lord, that we would hold to every single word of it, that we would not deny it, that we would not walk away from it, that we would be those by the power of your spirit that indwells us, that we would be able to stand firm in the dark days. Father, I do pray that we would be people who are dependent upon you, longing for you to change us from the inside out because we are incapable in our own power. Father, we thank you again for your word and the time we have together and to learn it together, write it on our hearts. Change us. In Christ's name amen all right second Peter if you're there with me hopefully I gave you enough time chapter 1 1 through 11 Simon Peter a servant an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord That he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is his word. First thing that we see, we grow in Christ by his divine power. It is by his divine power. We have, as we said earlier, obtained a faith. This is God's work on our behalf. The word obtained here is to be received by lot. The same word is used in Luke 1, 9, where it says, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So, as Peter says this, he says, listen, as I was called to be a follower of Jesus. You have been called to be a follower of Jesus. We have obtained this faith because Jesus has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. This is his doing. It's by his divine power and you are hopeless and helpless without him interceding and doing something for you. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he says, listen, right up front, I'm praying for you that the grace and peace would be multiplied let me ask you how many of you need more grace anyone i mean as james 4 6 but he gives more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud He gives grace to the humble as often as you and i sin and fail listen in christ there's more grace It, it doesn't give you a license to sin it doesn't give you a license to say you know what God's going to show me grace, so I'm going to live however I want. No, it doesn't. It, not, you don't understand grace if that's it. It's the fact that even though you will fail in the flesh, he says, listen, there's more grace for you. May it be multiplied to you. And peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He says in John 14, 7. I don't know where you are today as you come in here. I don't know what you're facing, what decisions are on, on for this week, what obstacles, what hardships. But I do know that there is more grace for the sinner and there is more peace for the one who's struggling, the one who is suffering. His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I love this verse. In the salvation we have obtained by faith, God has granted to us his divine power that has everything you need to mature in your faith and live a life of godliness if you are in christ right now you've been given everything you need to walk in godliness you don't you don't need more you've already been given everything isn't that amazing everything has been given to you for a life of godliness as jerry bridges says godliness is the devotion to god which results in a life of pleasing that's pleasing to him Everything has been given to you by God's divine power for you to live a life that, revol- that results in devotion to God and a life that is pleasing to Him. This past week or so, I, uh, I found myself in Home Depot. I'm a Home Depot guy. You're either a Lowe's or a Home Depot guy. You're, you're one or the other, and you don't, you don't go to the other one unless you have to. I'm a Home Depot guy. So I was in Home Depot, and I was like, you know what? It's been years, and it's time to make the purchase, you ever, man, you you ever do that, you you talk yourself into it. You're like, this is it. I will not use an extension cord any longer in my life. I'm buying a blower, a leaf blower with a battery. Like it, it's time. Like I'm just not going to do it. So I went down the aisle and I'm looking at all the leaf blowers and I was like, I'm going to buy the cheapest one. That's that's how I am, right? So I'm looking. I've got my, I've got my, you know, one picked out. I grab it. And I'm like, it's a pretty good deal. Put it in the cart. And I'm going through and looking at all the other things that I'm not going to buy. And I look down and I read, battery not included. And I was like, well, what good is that? What am I going to do? Just get it out of the box and wave it at stuff? Like, what am I going to do with this? So I go back and I buy the more expensive one that says battery included, right? And I went home and I plugged that thing in and I blew everything. I I was blowing things I'd never blown before everything was there not only not only the blower but the power was there listen this is, what, this is what Peter's saying he's like listen everything has been granted to you for a life of godliness he's given you everything that you need to live a life that's pleasing to him not only that he's given you the power to function because you can't do it on your own there is absolutely nothing you can do on your own because our Good works are as what? Filthy rags. So how do we do this? It's through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him. This is where we tap into a life of godliness. Peter, who walked with Jesus, grew in his knowledge of Jesus. Every day that he interacted with Christ it was another day of revelation for him. He just continued on a knowledge that was not an intellectual. The word here is not an intellectual knowledge. It's a personal knowledge knowledge. And as we tap into the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, it empowers us to a life of godliness. I can't say it better than John Piper. John Piper says, the Christian life is not merely a set of doctrines to be accepted. It is a power to be experienced. It is a tragic thing to ask people if they know the Lord and have them start listing the things they believe about the Lord. Brothers and sisters, believing things about Jesus Christ will save no one. The devil's are the most orthodox believers under heaven. It is divine power that saves. If the power of God does not flow into your life and make you godly, you are not Christ. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The mark of sonship is divine power, and the mark of power is godliness, which means a love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God. Wow all things have been given to you all things by his divine power as john 14:21 whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is that loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and manifest myself to him there is a direct connection between the knowledge of god and the personal relationship with god into a life of godliness with god this is what's been given to us verse 4 by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The promises, the great promises as 1 John 2:25, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. A promise that you are in Christ, that you are saved, that you are justified, that you are not held accountable for your sins, but His righteousness has been imputed to you as though you have never sinned. What a great promise. As Scott Humbert says, if you are in Christ, you have been justified eternally, irreversibly, and gloriously. God has spoken His everlasting sentence over your soul. Through faith alone, on the basis of the death and life of Jesus Christ alone, you are not guilty but righteous, not hell-bound, but heaven-bound, not condemned, but justified. That's a great promise, isn't it? That's a great promise. The great promises, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, we said this several months back, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. The great promise is that we have been given his very Holy Spirit. The same spirit that had the power that rose Christ from the dead now lives in us. That power now enables us to live a life of godliness. Everything has been given to us. It is a guarantee of the inheritance that one day we will have eternal life with him. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should Seem to have failed to reach it. The writer of Hebrews says, Israel missed the earthly promised land. So today, make sure you don't miss the rest that you can have in Christ, resting in the promises of His finished work on the cross for you. So that through them, verse 4, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. From the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Partakers of the divine nature. Warren Wearsby says, Nature determines appetites. A pig wants the slop and a dog will return to its vomit. But sheep, they desire green pastures. Nature also determines behavior. An eagle flies because it has an eagle's nature. And a dolphin swims because it has the nature of a dolphin. Nature determines environments. Squirrels climb trees, moles burrow in the ground, and trout swim in the water. Nature also determines association. Lions travel in prides, sheep in flocks, and fish in schools. If nature determines appetite, and we have God's nature within, then we ought to have an appetite for that which is pure and holy. Our behavior ought to be like that of the Father. We ought to live in the kind of spiritual environment that is suited for our nature. We ought to associate with that which is true to our nature the only normal fruit bearing life for a child of god is a godly life so we must ask ourselves the question so what does our appetite behavior environment and association throughout the week reveal about our nature is it a carnal human nature driving our decisions or is it a abiding divine nature driving our decisions Peter is getting at the fact that we have been given everything needed for a life of godliness that we can even partake in the divine nature that he will change us from the inside out our desires our appetites our environments everything about us will change because we will begin to be more and more and more transformed into the very image of his son he's given us everything is that a description of our life so here it is for believers You have been given the source you've been given divine power you did not do anything to deserve it but God's grace he has bestowed upon you divine power for a purpose what is the purpose a life of godliness that you would glorify God with everything that is that is in you that your life will be used as a life of worship for him so you have divine power in order to fulfill your purpose which is godliness And how do you tap into that? What is the means by which you do that? It's through faith. It is by taking what you know about God and what you know with your experience with God and applying it to your life through the means of knowledge. We have been given a result. If we have the divine power, we have a purpose, and then we begin to work towards that purpose with our knowledge, the result will be that we are partakers. We will begin to bear much fruit because we will abide And what is the reward? We will escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Not only will we one day escape eternally from the corruption of this world, but you will be able to see that in your life as you pursue godliness, you will begin to escape the corruption of this world day in and day out as you die to yourself and you follow Jesus Christ. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Corruption here describes the decomposition of rotting organisms and the accompanying stench. That is the corruption that is in the world. In the nostrils of a holy God, the sins and the actions of sin is a grotesque smell. You've all been there, right? The weather's beginning to change. You turn off the air conditioning, you roll down the windows, and you... Let your hair blow in the breeze. You crank up the radio, and you sit in traffic, right? And you're just like, oh, this is, this, is, this is it. Fall's here. And then you get that smell of the deer that was hit a few days ago. Oh, what is that? You know, and you, at that point, you're just hoping it, it goes quickly, and you can keep driving. That's the smell of sin in a holy God's nostrils. The corruption of this world, the sin that is, that is happening, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were separated from God. Our lives were tainted by total depravity. That means everything within us was touched by sin, and everything we did, even our good works, were a stench to God. There is nothing that we can do that is good that can clean up our mess because we are just continuing to smear the mess that is going on in our life. That's the smell. And so, as 2 Corinthians two fifteen through 16 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to, the, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? What kind of smell does your life give off? A life of godliness is a sweet aroma to those who are being saved. A life of godliness, a life that is, that is tapped into the divine power, that is using everything that God has given, his, his divine power to live a life of godliness, it is a sweet aroma to those who are following Christ. It is a sweet aroma. But to those who are perishing, to those who are apostatizing, those who are walking away from the faith, a life of godliness is a horrible smell to them. Let me, let me ask you, is the sin of the world a horrible stench to you? Or is it an attractive smell to you? This, this, would be, this would be an indicator of whether or not Christ has your heart. If the sins of the world are still, they, they still smell good, that means you're still dead. But if the sins of the world are repulsive to you, that means you're alive in Christ. We are to lay our lives on the altar. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to offer up our lives to him. Now Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. His death on the cross covered us. It covers our stench. There's nothing that we do. Our good works cannot save us. Our good works cannot make us smell better. It is by Christ and Christ alone that we are able to stand It's his divine power. Before we move into the next point next week, let me close here and pray for us. That we would really take into consideration that this week God has given us everything that we need for a life of godliness. So let me ask you, are you pursuing it? Are you pursuing a life of godliness? If not, I pray that today you would be convicted by that. And if you are someone who still loves the smell of sin, that you would fall on your knees before him and say, change my life, change my heart.